when I was growing up, my grandmother Johnson had a portrait of Jesus hanging in her living room. And I'll bet you all can see the portrait that I'm talking about because, yes, it is that portrait of Jesus. I've heard it described as showing Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes. You know, it's a blonde-haired, blue-eyed portrait of Jesus. The proverbial Scandinavian Jew, I guess. So... Doing my due diligence, as I always do for this sermon, I decided to refresh myself by pulling up the, the portrait on the internet. And here is what I found. A three-quarter uh, facial portrait. Turned a little sideways, you can see both the eyes, but only one side of the face. Of a man with shoulder-length hair, actually a little bit longer than that, spilling off his shoulders, going down his back with a medium beard and mustache. And his eyes uh, were lifted towards heaven with the soft glow of glory lighting his face, a tunic or robe loose on his shoulders. And as a child, I loved that picture, I have to tell you. As for the slander of him being a Scandinavian, I will say this, that portrait resembles a portrait I have of my uh, great-great-grandfather, Niels Johnson, very closely, so, who was from Denmark. So, Scandinavian Jesus, maybe so. And as for the blue eyes, by the way, one of the pictures I brought up did have this portrait with blue eyes. So, we'll just go with it for the, for the sake of this sermon. As a matter of fact... Uh, now, in defense of my grandmother, who was a very godly woman, played organ and piano in churches for 65 years until basically her death, she was not reformed. She was congregational. I think you can get away with some of those things in the congregational church of having a graven image of the Lord. And not only that, my childhood church, which was a Methodist church, had the same portrait in their multi-purpose room. So... Just throwing that out here. Now, in this church, derived from Puritan theology, thought, and worship, we would not have this portrait or any other representation of a godly theme in our place of worship because the second commandment forbids graven images, especially of anything in heaven above which uh, means God. So, why would my grandmother, and even so my Methodist, more so my Methodist church, have an image of Jesus on prominent display? Now, the wag in me would argue that the depiction of a long-haired, blue-eyed, brunette man was in no way an image of Jesus. Okay, I will stand with that. This was not an image of Jesus. So where did such a portrayal come from? Well, it didn't come from Jewish art. That much is certain. Uh, Jews refrained from any figurative art of a person or of an animal, as the Second Amendment uh, commands, until about 300 AD, when they got into the whole art act because of Greek and Roman art. Christians also refrained from portraying Jesus in paintings until the Jewish influence on Christianity waned around the 3rd century. So about the same time, when the, when the Jewish influence, when the Christians were kicked out of the temple in about 105 AD, 
Uh, there were still Jews in the Jewish influence for a couple hundred years, and Christians did not do that. And then about the year 300, they started showing up in Roman art. It's those Romans again. So, catacomb paintings show a shaggy, albeit black-haired Jesus. Uh, and those portraits became common. But why long-haired? Why is Jesus portrayed that way? After all, both the Old Testament and New Testament give grooming standards for Jews. You can find them if you look for them, for both Jews and for first century Christians. Grooming standards for temple priests were given in the books of the law, the Torah, and also in the prophets. The prophet Ezekiel gave this grooming standard for the hair of temple priests. He said, um, they shall not shave their heads or let their locks grow long. They shall surely trim the hair of their heads. So their hair was to be neatly trimmed but not shaved off. And they were not to indulge in trendy hairstyles no matter how neat they were. Leviticus 21.5 advises, they shall not make bald patches on their heads nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. That's from Leviticus 21.5. So, uh, no monk look. You can't shave bald patch on your head. Uh, Leviticus 19.27 says, Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head, or clip off the edges of your beard. So, Jews had full sideburns. And just, just a quick aside, because I can't let this pass, Seidberg comes from the Civil War general uh, Ambrose Burnside, who had great big huge sideburn, burn, whatever, facial hair that were then called sideburns after Burnside. So a little, little, little tidbit for you there. There's, uh, the Jewish sideburns were called payat, according to Shabbat.org, who says, much animosity and torture was directed specifically at the Jewish peyot. For the peyot are a sign of, that differentiates and clearly marks the Jew. However, instead of being embarrassed by them, many Jews literally gave their lives for their peyot, staying proud Jews even to the last moment of their lives. You can see that with... Uh, Orthodox Jews that you see represent pictures of representation pictures of in New York City they have full sideburns often they have a neatly trimmed beard so length and style of hair sideburns and beard were laid out in the Old Testament for early Christians we have this word on grooming from the Apostle Paul in in 1 Corinthians 11 14 to 15 which was written in 55 AD, uh, he admonishes, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So if both the Old Testament and the New Testament says men should have short, neatly trimmed hair, where does the idea of a long past the soldiers quaffed Jesus come from. Okay? Why do we have that thought in our mind of Jesus 
what shall I say, the hippie Jesus, as opposed to the businessman Jesus, which is the style of hair he would have worn. Well, the two most physically described men in the Bible, okay, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, possibly the most recognizable figures outside of Jesus himself, were known for wild, unkempt hair. Uncut from infancy, meaning no baby locks were taken off of the scrapbook, okay? And this was due to vows that both of the uh, parents made to God, which served to explain and illustrate what otherwise would be a confusing passage that we're looking at today in Acts. So with that, in our study in Acts, the Apostle Paul is in the Greek city of Corinth, in a vision from God, Jesus promised no harm would come to Paul in that city, and he could boldly preach the word without fear, um, which he did for a number of months. So we're going to pick this up probably about a month before Paul leaves Corinth, is where we're at now. He's been here preaching for nearly a year and a half, and Acts 18, 18 through 21 say this, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Concray, he had uh, cut his hair for he was under a vow. Let me repeat that again. He cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, meaning Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Okay, this, this you know, when reading it just offhand, it's a little bit weird. The safety that Jesus promised Paul enabled him to stay and build God's church, as I said, for a year and a half, which Luke here calls many days longer. Okay, uh, Luke's usual sense of timekeeping holds here, and uh, many days passed. Along with Aquila and Priscilla, who have not only become his closest friends, but also really irreplaceable uh, uh, co-workers in his missionary status. He left Corinth to return to his home church in Syria, the church in Antioch, and he was accompanied part of the way by Aquila and Priscilla. That Paul felt he could leave the church in Corinth shows that new capable elders had been installed. We've met Crispus before. We met poor Sosthenes last week who was beaten for losing his case before Gallio against Paul. Stephanus is a big figure in the church, and so is Gaius, who we've previously met, where the church was meeting in his home. These are all named as godly leaders that could ably guide the Corinthian church. And that brings us to verse 18b, which reads, At Kencray, he... Paul had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now, Ken Cray, I've mentioned that Corinth is on a, uh, an isthmus. There's a small passage 
To the west lies the Mediterranean, uh, the rest of Greece, Rome, Italy, all of that. To the east lies the Black Sea, but also lies Turkey and the route down to Palestine. And this is where he's gone. Ken Cray was the port located about six miles southeast of Corinth from where he will catch a boat to go back to Antioch. So, why did a vow cause him to cut his hair? Because it sounds like because of a vow, he cut his hair. For that, I'll bring you back to our um, sartorial exemplars from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Possibly the most vivid figure in ancient Israel and in the Old Testament was Samson. Samson was a judge of Israel, and and I find that amusing because Samson was, I I think of the judges as having self-control, of having the Spirit of God guiding them in a wise way. Samson was not a wise figure. Samson, though a judge of Israel, was the most flamboyant judge possible. The strongest man who ever lived, as a child you will have learned that his strength came from his hair, which is not true, um, and that he could never cut it, which was also not true. His strength was a gift from God. His long hair was simply a symbol of his vow that his mother took. It was called... um, You've... It's, I wanted to see if Robin would correct it in the bulletin today, and he didn't, because the word Nazarite comes from the word Nazir. Uh, nazir means to separate. And if you look it up, even though my whole life I've called it Nazarite, which confuses me because it sounds like Nazarene, which it has nothing to do with. Nazir means to separate. A person who takes a vow of the Nazarite is taking a vow of separation, of piety and holiness for God. In the New Testament, the other most vivid figure, the man clothed in skins, eating honey, wild hair, baptizing in the wilderness, John the Baptist, his mother also dedicated him to the Lord with a vow of the Nazarite before he was born. Numbers chapter 6 outline the entire chapter 6 of Numbers outlines what is required by a vow of the Nazarite. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. Well, I always knew that. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink. I didn't think about vinegar. And shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. 
Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother or brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him, okay, we're taking all of this into account. If you're walking along and somebody dies suddenly next to you, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall shave it. On the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void because his separation was defiled. So it sounds to me like he's got to start over with his days of separation after being defiled by somebody dropping dead next to him. And this is the law for the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed, and this is where we're at in Acts today. When the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish blemish as a peace offering and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering, and he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall offer also its grain offering and its drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent meeting, tent of meeting, and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled and one unleavened loaf out of the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. I don't think we need to carry on anymore with that because we're close enough to what I'm getting at with that from this description. So, except in the cases of Samson, John the Baptist, and also, by the way, the prophet Samuel, who also was offered up by his mother because she thought she would never have a child as a living sacrifice to the Lord for his entire life. So we have three people in the Bible who had a lifetime Nazarite vow, and that's all that we know of. Other than them, the vow of a Nazarite was for a period of time only, usually 30 days, but it's not specified that 
that's, it was usually a month of a vow of uh, the Nazarite. It was to be voluntary. Now, Samson and John the Baptist and Samuel, uh, eh, it wasn't voluntary. It was voluntary of his mother. I'm not positive we'd call that voluntary, but special circumstance. It was open to either men or women. Anybody could take this vow. The vow was to set one aside for God's work or sometimes in thanksgiving for something that God has done. You abstain from any use of the grape. Uh, Aaron says it includes the grape leaves and the uh, vines. Uh, it, I didn't see that in... Uh, there might be more explanatory things in another book of the Bible than there was just right back here in Numbers. You did not cut your hair. At the completion of the period of your vow, you shaved your head and presented the hair to God at the temple in Jerusalem where it was burned on the fire at the altar that burned your offerings that you brought. And that is how you completed your vow. So, back to Acts 18, verse 18b. Paul's time of his Nazarite vow, which he, they suspect he made in thanksgiving for the vision that he received, that he would stay safe, he would not be beaten and driven out of a city again. Um, they, they think that he took a vow of a Nazarite in thanksgiving to God. His time is up at the time that he made it to Cancray. So he had his hair cut. Now, there was a stipulation that you did not see in here on what you do if you've taken a vow of a Nazarite when you're out of the country. Okay? So this is the part that I find interesting. If you're out of the country, when your vow expires, you are to cut your hair you are to save it, and you are to present it at the temple within 30 days. So, Paul has his hair cut in Cancray, and the clock is now running. And that's what I find so interesting, because it explains what happens next. Verse 19, and they came to emphasis. And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And, of course, we know from all of our past study... That was Paul's uh, modus operandi. He would go and he would talk to the Jews because also God-fearing Gentiles would be there. Luke does not provide us with the reason that Aquila and Priscilla uh, left with Paul from Corinth for Ephesus. But Ephesus here is the largest and most important city in Asia Minor. And on arrival, Aquila and Priscilla decided to stay they would remain in Ephesus for the next at least three years. The church would meet in their home. That would begin there. Uh, they would be there until they returned to Rome. If you remember, uh, we saw a couple weeks ago that Aquila and Priscilla were in Corinth because the Jews that had been expelled by Claudius from uh, Rome for causing trouble. Claudius died in A.D. 54, and the expulsion expired. And in three years, when this expires, Aquila and Priscilla will return to Rome, where they will reestablish the church 
that we know of the Church of the Romans. So, Paul, before resuming his trip to Syria, as was his custom, went to the synagogue to present the gospel. As, as in Corinth, and especially Berea, he is received with a very friendly reception. So friendly, in fact, that verse 20 says, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Okay? And see, this is what caught my mind. Paul declined to stay. He wasn't driven out of the city. They wanted him to stay. And Paul declined? How seriously... Paul took his Nazarite vow, we can see that on his acceptance in Ephesus and on his invitation to remain teaching in Ephesus, to teach in the synagogue, he turned them down to get back to Jerusalem. Verse 21 reads, But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul regretfully left Ephesus. He did not particularly want to go, but a vow to God, to Paul, is a vow to God. So Aquila and Priscilla stayed behind in Ephesus for a number of years. As it would turn out, it was God's will that Paul would return to Ephesus. It would be the center of his third missionary journey uh, which would begin in about three years' time. So, Paul, with a fresh haircut, bore, it wasn't a fresh haircut, he was completely shaved. Okay, that's, you didn't just cut your hair, you, you shaved it off completely. So, Paul, bald as Yul Brenner, boards a ship bound for Syria. But of course, the vow of the Nazarite really, you know, really, ultimately had nothing to do with hair. It had to do, it was the visible evidence of one's obedience to God and how seriously do you take what you undertake for God. Samson didn't lose his supernatural strength solely because Delilah cut his hair while he was sleeping. Samson's strength was a gift from God dependent on Samson's obedience to the Lord. His hair was a visible sign of that obedience, but Samson fell into a dissolute life. I mean, he had everything and he flaunted who he was. Um, he chased, he gave into his lusts. He chased after prostitutes in Philistine. Uh, he fell in love with another Philistine woman, Delilah. This was forbidden to him. He was vain. He was a braggart. He was a show off. If you think of him carrying the city gates up to the top of a hill. And he flippantly frittered away, try and say that twice, he flippantly frittered away the gifts, the gifts that God had bestowed on him. He had broken the spirit of the Nazarite law, of Nazarite vow, long before the shearing of his hair advertised the reality of that broken vow. 
Ultimately, through his vanity and unpious lifestyle, he failed as a judge of Israel to save his people from their enemies, and he failed to preserve his own life as well. John the Baptist, on the other hand, remained true to his vow and was used by God to point out, to announce, to make straight the way, the coming of the Lord's anointed. Though he too lost his life, he gained the kingdom of God. And I would be remiss if I failed to point out that the first Christian, a Christian even before Christianity, was a Baptist. So we'll just throw that out right there. Though an apostle of Christ in 51 AD in Corinth, and we talked about this at fellowship group, you know, uh, why does, uh, why do Jews not leave Judaism for Christianity if they can see what's happening? Paul was still enough of a Jew in 51 AD to take a Nazarite vow in thanksgiving to God for his protection during his stay in Corinth. And indeed, we will see in three more chapters that when Paul returned to Jerusalem, the elders of the church in Jerusalem, the Hebrew Christians, um, urged him once again to take a Nazarite vow to demonstrate to all the people of the city, regular Jews and Messianic Jews alike, that despite his well-known outreach to the Gentile nations, he still considered himself a Jew because there was grumbling going on in Jerusalem about this outreach to the Gentile nations. And to this request by the leaders of the Jerusalem church, he will take that vow of uh, the Nazarite. They asked him to take it along with four others and to pay for the sacrifices of the four other men, which he also agreed to do. Remember, we have a a lamb, we have a ram, we have a ewe. This was a costly, uh, multiply it by five, this was a costly undertaking for Paul, who lived off the offerings of various churches that he started. Yet, he decided he will do it. Now, Christians today, and in actuality in Paul's day, Uh, had no need to take a Nazarite vow. We do not need to take this vow to separate ourselves as holy to God. By God's grace, we are all already separated unto God, a holy people. All of us already are. That is what our life in Christ means. The sacrifice required by a Nazarite vow pales into comparison pales in comparison to the Christian life. Paul points this out in his letter to the church in Rome. I just mentioned it was reconstituted when Aquila and Priscilla go back there. Six years after these events that we're looking at, he writes to the church in Rome. And in Romans 12, 1 through 2, he sums up the Christian's vow to God in this way. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
That is the Christian vow to God. By our life, by our adoption into His family, we are living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for the example of the giants who have come before us, demonstrating what the Christian life is, demonstrating what self-sacrifice to your kingdom means, demonstrating what an acceptable, holy life is to God. I pray that you will grant us the strength to also live that life that we would stand for you in bad times as a living sacrifice. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.